Why don't you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for who you are. You are the worthy, you are the only one worthy of our praise. You are holy and righteous. And we thank you for loving us. We praise you today. We give you all the honor and the glory. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. He can't replace 
It is so good to worship together and to spend this time focusing on our great God through the power of His Holy Spirit and to give honor and praise and glory to our King Jesus. And to hear the ladies sing and the choir sing, honoring Him, it's just wonderful. I, I want to give you a word of thanks. I meant to do it last week. Um, I was feeling a little under the weather, so uh, I forgot. But uh, when you held the reception for the, the staff during the month of October, you have no idea what an encouragement that was. The wonderful cards you gave to all of us with such sweet notes in there. The wonderful gifts you gave to us. We've been delighting in some really wonderful treats at restaurants and things. And you just were... Um, you were just so tangibly loving to us. I just want to say thank you. I know I speak for Wendy and Sean and Steve in how, how sweet you were and what a gift it was. So I just have to say thank you. And I just got to tell you, I love y'all. And it's great to be with you today. So let's jump right into Genesis chapter 27. And I need to kind of build a little bit of introduction here to, to make us think together all the way through why we are where we are in the Bible, what the Gospel Project uh, hopes to do in Sunday school uh, during the three-year journey through the Bible, and and also just to make sure we're keeping the big story in front of us. There's kind of three layers when we're reading a story like Genesis 27. There's kind of three layers, and, and I don't have these in your outline, but you may want to pencil these down. The first layer, the top layer, the thing that God always wants us to see is His sovereign plan to bring Christ as Savior. That's what's going on in the whole Bible. That's the story of the Bible. It is God's sovereign plan to bring about the Messiah, Christ our King. And all the stories of the Bible are part of the tapestry of weaving for us a picture of our need for Christ and who Christ is and what He does for us and where He's taking us in all of eternity. And so when we read this story, the first layer we have to step back and see is God's sovereign plan to bring Christ to be the Savior. That's what's going on. That ties together all of the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the blessing. It ties all of that together, gives purpose and makes sense of it. The second layer that's very visible also is the layer of mankind's sinful participation in God's plan. Mankind's sinful participation. Now, this is important because when we read the Old Testament, we read the New Testament, God makes very plain what people really are like. He's not sort of uh, sainting them from birth. He shows us what they're really like in their weaknesses and sinfulness. In fact, all through the tapestry of the Old Testament, you only have a few characters whose sinful side is not just explicitly shown. You have Joseph. You don't see a very sinful side in him. It's not saying that he's not sinful, but that's just not something that God chooses to expose in his story. You see Daniel similarly. But for the most part, all of the folks that are laid out in the Old Testament who are 
held in high esteem by us today, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, great leaders and prophets, and David, the king, and, and all of this, we get a picture that they are sinful. And so one of the things that has to be thought about is mankind's sinful participation in God's plan. Now, why is this an important layer? Well, it's because here's how God is glorified. God is glorified by saving sinners. That's what Christ came to do. That's how God's glorified, by giving mercy and grace to sinners. That's how He gets glory for Himself in all of eternity, is that a great big number of sinners like us are going to gather around the throne of God because of the work of Christ, and we're going to sing for all of eternity to His praise for His grace through Christ to sinners. And He will receive glory for that. And so that's woven through. When my children were uh, doing homeschool back in the day, um, we used a curriculum that was on video. And there was a particular event in that curriculum that frustrated me. It came from um, a, a group that produced very good materials. But in one particular classroom, there was a banner in the back of the class or the front of the classroom. You, you're looking from the back of the classroom and watching the video of the teacher teach and and there's this banner, and, and it's over the chalkboard, and it's in big letters. And, and the banner says, God helps those who... Now, I want to tell you all that that is not from the Bible. The Bible says that God helps the helpless. So make clear. And so I had to sit down with my girls and say, time out. This is wrong. Don't memorize that. It's not true. God helps the helpless. The Scripture is full of the examples of God helping the helpless. God is not glorified by us helping ourselves. He's glorified by saving sinners and helping us out of our depravity and despair, out of our sin and distress, and by us crying out to Him and Him saving and delivering us. So the second layer is that layer. It's mankind's sinful participation in God's plan. God is being glorified by saving, redeeming, and using sinners for His great plan of salvation. We see that all through the Old Testament as folks like Rahab, the harlot, is chosen to bear the messianic line in her womb. And in the New Testament, she's held up as a person of faith. And so you see this picture of God using these sinful people. And so that's what we're seeing today. Now, the third layer is important as well. The first layer is to produce trust. I want you to trust God's plan. He's going to bring it about. The second layer is to bear responsibility. Understand that you're responsible for your behavior and how God is going to use you, it's going to be tied to you choosing and obeying even after failure. And the third, the third layer is hope. It's hope. Hope for sinners. Because all through the Old Testament, sinners are saved. All through the New Testament, sinners are saved. 
And so wherever you've been and whatever you've done, part of the story of the Bible is to say to you, do you know what? There is hope for you that no matter what you have done, God will not only save you, but he will use you for his glory and for your good and for eternal purposes beyond your imagination. And so as we go in today, those three layers have to help us understand the story. Big picture, God's sovereign plan going about through these knuckleheads. Next layer, these knuckleheads are sinful, but they still are participating. And final layer, there is hope. There is hope. That no matter where you've been or what you've done, God can save you and use you for his glory, your good, and eternal purposes. So let's step into the text with the first point. Pulled it straight out of the Sunday school text. Reworded it a little bit. Number one, God chose to use Jacob in spite of the fact that he was born into a dysfunctional family. This is a sad part of the story of the patriarchs. They're characterized by dysfunction. Abraham, traveling into a country, runs into a king and says, the pretty one, that's my sister when actually she was his wife. And so he heirs and does it twice, and so shows him to be deceptive, shows him to be a knucklehead like me, and so it shows this part of God's sovereign plan working it out, yet sinful men and women participating in hope for sinful people. And so God chose to use Jacob in the same way he did with Abraham, in spite of the fact of this dysfunction. The family is broken. When you look in chapter 25, you get a little piece of the brokenness. You see in verse 27 of chapter 25 of Genesis, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. So you see a family that's playing favorites. Dysfunction is there. You see when we get into the story in chapter 27 that, that, that a wife will take advantage of her husband's failing eyesight. That a son will participate in the deception to trick his own dad. You'll see a kind of brokenness there that shows that this family is not operating in the kind of godliness and cohesiveness that families ought to function in. The favoritism and the distrust grow to epic proportions so that the more or less last memory that the dad has of his son Jacob is that he deceived him that he played on his age and infirmity and disability. And so even though Jacob was born into a dysfunctional family, God chose to use him. Now, those three layers are important there. You may have been born in a dysfunctional family. I didn't, but my mom did. My mom was the first generation of many generations who embraced the gospel in its beauty, in its truth. But my mom was given the task, having been moved from mill town to mill town, 
she was given the task to go and retrieve her drunken stepfather from the bar on the day that paychecks came out with hopes to retrieve him before he spent everything. My mom was born in dysfunction, came up in dysfunction. My mom never heard that God loved her until she was 17 years old. Right in the heart of Opelika, Alabama and Atlanta, Georgia, with churches all over the place, no one had ever communicated to my mom that God loved her. And a friend working with her at the Western Union Telegraph office when she was 17 came up to her and said, Betty, has anybody ever told you John 3.16? She said, no. What's that? Oh, my mom had been around church. But no personal moment to hear the truth. And her friend said, Betty, let me read a verse to you and then I'm going to change it a little bit. The verse says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. She said, Betty, let me change that. For God so loved Betty that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For the first time in my mom's life, after 17 years of nothing but dysfunction, she heard the gospel. She believed. She was saved. And she raised a cohesive, godly family. Marrying my dad, committing themselves together to Christ, rearing us to know the Lord Jesus, witnessing to us and living out the gospel in the home and out of the home. Not in perfection, but in truth. And see, my mom was the child of dysfunction. You might be too. Jacob was. God chose to use him anyway. Number two. God chose to use Jacob in spite of the fact that he had become a deceitful man. This kind of life of dysfunction bred in him the willingness to copy the deeds of his mom, and even his grandfather, in functioning with deception. He was a liar. Not only was he a liar, he was one of those bold-faced liars, where he could go directly to his aging father, tricked out with some animal skins. By the way, Esau must have been really hairy. You know, he could have used a good waxing on his arms or something. This guy was... He was so hairy that they put the skin of a goat on the back of Jacob's neck. I mean, that's a hairy neck right there. And so when he goes in, he is tricking his dad in his old age. He's tricking him every way he can to, to, to steal this blessing. And even though Jacob was very deceitful, God chose to use him a little further down the road. God is going to reveal himself to Jacob personally. That hasn't come yet. And so Jacob is living a life as a deceiver. And probably the last memory of his dad that he's going to carry to his grave is that he tricked his own dad to steal the blessing of his brother. But in spite of that, God chooses to use him. You see, not only is our environment an issue that we're born into that affects us, 
But we can't just blame our environment because we decide what we're going to become. Jacob decided to fulfill his name, the tripper-upper, and to be a deceptive man. And some of you, you're here today, and maybe yes or no on the dysfunctional family, but you know that just like Jacob, along in the path of your life, you've chosen to be sinful. And sometimes brazenly, boldly, maybe lying to your parents, maybe lying to your spouse, maybe lying about your spouse, just somehow that you've justified very sinful behavior and your conscience has been bugging you and your sin has sidelined you and now you're sitting on the side either as an unbeliever who's been faking it in church or as a believer who feels disqualified. I want you to know that God did not bench Jacob. He didn't take him out. Oh, He disciplined him. Oh, He let the consequences pile up. But God did not set him aside and say, I won't use you because you're a sinner. In fact, God is glorified in that while Jacob was yet a sinner, Christ was going to come through him to save us. And so God chose to use him in spite. And number three, God chose to use Jacob in spite of the fact that Jacob's deception and his family dysfunction brought disastrous consequences. It is important to note that even though God chose to use Jacob after all of this in his sovereign plan, that Jacob's sinful participation and the way his sin was carried out brought generations of consequence. It brought wars that would later come between Edom and Israel. It brought a dysfunction that caused him to, and it's likely that he never saw his mother again after this moment. Caused him to be separated from his family, from his brother, from his father. It even led to further dysfunction because I don't know if you've kind of followed the story, but who did, who did Jacob go to live with? Do you all remember? Who did he go to live with? Laban. He went to live with Laban. Who was Laban? Well, that was his mom's brother. Well, Laban and Rebekah had grown up in the same household, and they had the same practice. They were first-rate deceivers. And so when Jacob shows up at Laban's, what does Laban do to Jacob? He tricks him. He lets him court for seven years the woman of his dreams and then gets him just intoxicated enough on the wedding night that he can pass off the other sister on him on the wedding night, and Jacob wakes up the morning after the wedding and realizes he's just married the wrong girl. He's married Leah, not Rachel. And so he falls right into more deception and right into more dysfunction. And so part of the outflow of Jacob's life was an outflow of more dysfunction. I want, to, I want to be careful here, but I want, to be, I want to be firm. If you choose dysfunction, you will reproduce it. If you choose it, you will reproduce it. Now, some of you didn't choose it. You were born in it. You don't have to reproduce it. But if you choose it, you will reproduce it. 
it will come out and it will follow you. And so it's very important to understand that even though God is going to use these men, they're not going to be free from the dysfunction that they choose to carry on. And it will become a major issue in the next two generations for them. The same favoritism will be passed down into the family of Jacob so that Jacob will end up playing favorites with a young boy named Joseph and the brothers will see the favoritism and they'll say, let's just kill him. And so it will grow. But God chose to use Jacob in spite of the fact that Jacob's deception was there and his family's dysfunction was there and it brought disastrous consequences. Now I want to take you to a couple of texts that you can think through because when I talk about God's sovereign plan, I want you to see that clearly in the text. When I talk about the sinful responsibility, I want you to see that clearly in the text. And then I want to close with a word of hope. God's sovereign plan is revealed to us in Genesis chapter 25. Go there for just a moment. Rebecca is pregnant. And inside her womb are two Boys, twins, and they're fighting. And she's feeling it. And she's feeling it so much that she feels like she needs to ask the Lord about it. So in verse 22, But the children struggled, this is 25, 22, But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, then why am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples shall be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. This is God's sovereign choice. God chose Jacob before he was born. God chose to use Jacob before he had ever made a decision. Before Esau had ever made a decision, God chose. Romans 9 goes into great depth to say, this is according to God's sovereign choice. Over all of man's sinful activity and over all of our hope is this one thing. God is sovereign over all. And he is sovereign in choosing to do what he chooses to do. That is reinforced here. But something happens in mankind's sinful participation. Look in verse 27 of the same chapter. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skilled hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. He got his name from the soupy light. That's pretty good. Call me chicken noodle. Um, Verse 31. But Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. So of what use then is this birthright to me? And Jacob said, first, swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And when I say that God is sovereign over all, mankind's sinful behavior simply confirms it. Esau is just carrying out the wickedness of his own heart, and he is confirming the sovereign plan of God. But I want to share with you how the New Testament presents Jacob and Esau and, and, and it's important because their example in Romans 9 and 10 and their example in Hebrews chapter 12 are very important in understanding what the disposition about Esau and Jacob are. Esau represents 
all people who would rather be instantly gratified by the things of the flesh than eternally gratified by the things of God. That's why God despises him. This is very important. He is a type or a picture of a, or an illustration of the kind of people who will waste their eternity by immediate gratification. They will choose the things of this world that they can have instantly above the things of God that can only be obtained eternally. Jacob is a type or a picture of the other. Those that are of the Messiah who would rather choose the long-term things than the short-term things. So that's how these guys are used in the New Testament and how and why in chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews that Esau is called a godless, immoral person because he is simply seeking instant gratification rather than eternal satisfaction. This is important because it's the reason most people will refuse Christ. They would rather have their own way today than God's way eternally. They would rather be gratified now than glorified later. And so the result is an Esau mindset and a Jacob mindset. And so what's happening is God has this plan He's chosen Jacob. Esau simply confirms it with his behavior of despising his birthright, which sets him up to lose the blessing. And those two things go together in Hebrews 12. Finally, I want to close with the hope. Funny thing about this guy, Jacob, is God is going to make him into the nation of Israel. He's going to change his name from tripper-upper to prince. He's going to change his estate from deceiver to king. This trickster, deceiver, and dysfunctional man is going to be so gloriously changed by God's revelation to him that God is going to take this broken man, this sinful man, and he is going to begin his promise of inheritance. And he's going to name him. Israel, and he is going to give him the nations. And he is going to make him the recipient of the blessings of Abraham. And he is going to make him the nation that God is going to call his very own people. How so? There is an old Indian proverb India Indian, not North American native. And in that proverb, there is a story of a man in India who waters his, uh, brings water every day, four times a day, at breakfast, at lunch, at dinner, and at bedtime. And this man goes down to the well, and he has a long stick, and on each end of that stick are two clay pots. And he gets to the well and he draws out of the well and he pours water and fills each of those two clay pots. And he does it for years and years and years. And one day he is sitting in his house after he has brought the water to the house and the clay pots come to life. 
And one of the clay pots is cracked. And he begins to exclaim to the man who brings the water. He calls him his master and he says, Master, I do not understand you. For the last years and years, you have walked down to the well four times a day carrying me and the other pot. The other pot is perfect and intact. And every time you reach the house with that other pot, from that pot you fill the cistern in the house. But I am cracked and I leak. And every day by the time you get to the house, I am completely empty. Master, I am useless. Why do you carry me to the well every day and fill me if my brokenness is going to cause me to leak all of the water out before we even get to the house. I'm useless, Master. The Master looks at him and said, Claypot, I chose you because of your brokenness. You see, every day when I go down and I fill the two pots, you'll remember that on... The first journey of the day, I carry you on my right side. Second journey of the day, I carry you on my left side. Third journey of the day, you're back on the right. Fourth journey of the day, you're back on the left. And on our journey back to the well today, I want you to look. Because lining my path from the well to the house is a garden. And I have watered my garden with your brokenness every day for all these years. I chose you because of your weakness. I chose you because of your brokenness. I chose you to water my garden. The pot finally came to see his usefulness. And he rejoiced that his master would give him such a privilege as watering his garden. And he looked forward every day to His brokenness being used to the glory of His Master. That's the story of Jacob. It can be your story too. You see, God still uses cracked pots. And He wants to use you. Would you bow with me? Here's how. What had to happen is that pot had to be picked up, chosen and shouldered by the Master. That's what He wants to do with you today. He wants to pick you up out of your uselessness, brokenness. He wants to pick you up out of your sinfulness. And through the glory that He gives us in Christ, He wants to forgive your sins. He wants to wash you clean, make you new. And then He will take all of your weaknesses like He did the Apostle Paul. In 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. But God chose me to display the magnitude of His grace through a sinful man like me. And through that sinful, broken vessel named Saul, God made Paul and He watered the nations with the Gospel through that man. And He wants to take you and put you to use today. But you must repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ. So I'm inviting you to do that this morning. Some of you, you feel sidelined because of your brokenness. Well, repent 
and step back in and let God put you to use. Some of you are lost and you've never received Christ and you're wandering in darkness and you're headed for destruction. But today you've heard of a God who takes broken people, sinful people, and employs them for His kingdom by revealing Himself to them, saving them, and using them. How about you? Would you call upon Him to save you today? Pray with me. Father in heaven, I've heard this good news that Jesus saves sinners. I'm that sinner. I confess it. And I now believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins and was raised from the dead. And I place my faith in Him, turning from my sin. Save me. Save me, God. Oh, He will. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you receive Him today? As God stirs your heart, would you stand? Would you come?